0: One pattern uh, that we see often in practice is how a particular skillful means or practice uh, ends up being both a means for awakening or a means for better understanding the mind, freeing up the mind, and also an expression of freedom or an expression of wisdom. I think this is true for the precepts too. We can see the precepts, uh, you know, a set of trainings, mindfulness trainings as they've been called, or a set of reflections, a way to better see our actions in the world. We can see them as a means for clarifying our life or a means for awakening. And then we can also understand the precepts, like the precept of non harming, as an expression of freedom or a fruit of practice. So, we've talked about uh, non harming this first precept mostly the last couple of days. I want to uh, talk about the others tonight, and tomorrow night, talk about right speech. So, tonight, that gives us the second precept, undertaking the training to refrain from taking what's not given, the third precept, undertaking the training to refrain from sexual misconduct, and the fifth precept, undertaking the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind. And instead of seeing these as some external standard, remember, you know, in a more practical way, they're uh, meant They're just uh, ways of understanding our action, our thoughts, words, and actions, illuminating our thoughts, words, and actions. As Ajahn Amaro says in one of his writings, it's like road signs—you know, different a, a particular form or practice that reminds us when there's a turn in the road, or reminds us when we need to slow down, or reminds us when we're entering an area where people tend to make a lot of mistakes and create a lot of problems for themselves and others. As opposed to just a particular standard, you know, if we take it as a rule, just an external standard that we have to meet, I mean, a couple things happen. One is, maybe we meet the standard, and then we use it to judge everybody we imagine doesn't meet the standard. You know, I'm a vegetarian, and then we can use it as a source of pride. One of the um, criticisms, I guess, of monastic life is that uh, the monks, the nuns that can live that life um, and you know, just the austerity that comes with that life, they tend to become proud of you know, that degree of renunciation. It's, endemic. it's just, it's what happens. You know, just try sitting every day. Not only do you get the benefit of sitting every day, but it's a setup to become attached or to be prideful about sitting every day. It's so easy to be dismissive of people who don't sit every day or anything like that. I mean, one of the things that you see a lot at a place like Common Ground is this, I, I mentioned it, I'm not sure if it was on retreat or last week at the, December practice group retreat. But this dividing line of people who do residential retreats, you know, the in crowd, people who have done residential retreats, and how all of a sudden, you know, our relationship to people who haven't done residential retreats shifts, you know. Look up to those who have, look down to those who haven't. And there's like all these different ways. So whenever we create an external standard, whether it's around killing or around not non stealing or how we consume the sort of choices and decisions we tend to want to make a very clear clearly black and white rule so that we can feel some personal achievement when we master it when we make it over that hurdle or you know feel appropriate to judge ourselves or judge others when they don't make it don't master. Don't meet that that particular rule. So that's just a reminder, of something I've said before. But to really see all of these teachings around the precepts as something fluid, uh, a way of reflecting, a way of helping reflect on our thoughts, our actions, our words, to better understand the consequences, where they're coming from, where they lead to. So we can better participate in the world of thinking and speaking and acting. That's all. That's really what it's about. It's a skillful means. And then we'll notice, if we really take up the skillful means, we'll notice more times when, you know, just goodness, beauty... Harmony flows in terms of our thoughts, our words, our actions, so we can experience that fruit. So the precepts themselves can be the cause for throwing people out of our heart. You know, throwing ourselves out of our heart or throwing other people out of our heart when we have that external standard. Another quality or point that um, we've talked about already, discussed together already, is just this this fact around the precepts that the more complicated our life becomes. The harder it is to train in this way to take the precepts up as a training it works fast when our life is relatively simple and this is commonsensical because probably everybody everyone here we've had periods of our lives when we've been overwhelmed by the details of life and in those moments at, at those times it's been relatively easy to gossip to consume in ways that have been harmful i mean just think about what we do when we're overwhelmed, like the way we eat, the kind of relationship we have to media, the kind of relationship we have to speech. Um, and exa- uh, for example, how sloppy we allow ourselves to be when we're overwhelmed. I don't have time to be reasonable, so I'm just going to lay it on the line, you know. <laughs> you bother me.
1: <laughs>
0: like, subtlety and sensitivity, just... You know, we just don't have time to be sensitive. And it seems, that, seems like such a rational thing to think, that it's okay to be mean-spirited because we're in a hurry and, and this needs to be done. I think Cass mentioned this um, quote from Thomas Merton, a good friend of mine, made a copy and framed it for me and told me to put it in my office. <laughs> some of you might have seen it there Thomas Merton, our Catholic monk um, who got interested in Eastern spirituality shortly before he died in the late 60s, an untimely death, he was going to some kind of conference I think in Bangkok and uh, was coming out of a shower and somehow the water and the electric fan in his room and he got electrocuted so I understand at least anyway he wrote To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything, is itself to succumb to the violence of our times. Frenzy destroys our inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our work because it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful. I think in a Buddhist sense we'd say we translate that or restate that as it destroys it corrupts our intention when we're rushing when we're doing too much when our lives are overly complicated we lose the wholesome intention and our life becomes about getting things done instead of about doing something beautiful doing something good taking care of ourselves or another and then the Surface becomes an end in itself. Like getting this done becomes what's important. Not trying to be helpful. And then one other principle just summarizing what we've talked about the last few nights um, is this quality of inclusivity. And this relates to the precepts being a reflection instead of an external standard. So we understand that the precepts are always inclusive. It's not like we can fail. So by inclusive I mean we just work with this moment. We include this moment. So if we're reflecting about non-harming or non-stealing, it doesn't matter how many previous moments we've been bad or we've not fulfilled the precept or broken the standard that we've set for ourselves, the ideal we've set for ourselves. The question is, in this moment, how is this precept useful in illuminating the play of experience, cause and effect, consequences that might arise? How can we use the training in non-stealing, not getting involved in sexual misconduct, Not intoxicating the mind. How can we use these guidelines, these reflections, to see more clearly how things are unfolding and how the mind can participate in how things are unfolding? So we don't... The whole point of these reflections is to include more and more of what's happening in the moment. In a sense, Buddhist wisdom, you know, when we talk about wisdom in a Buddhist context, Buddhist wisdom, or wisdom rather, depends on being connected with the way things are. Like skill, to be skillful, to set in motion causes and conditions leading to happiness, real happiness and release. It depends on understanding or being connected with everything. I mean, think about how many harmful actions have been done because someone thought it was the right thing to do and they thought it was the right thing to do because they they were narrowly connected with the moment. They weren't connected to the moment in a broad and deep way. They saw one thing, you know. I mean, just silly, I, I don't know if silly is the right word, a tragic example is the, you know, the attitudes, the ways of thinking before the latest war in Iraq and you know people would fixate on one thing like I'm told Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction right focus on that and don't look at history (laughs) don't look at economics and oil and self-interest and don't look at family stuff in terms of the bushes and Saddam Hussein's uh, previous attempt to kill the George Bush Senior. They don't look at any of that. They just look at this one thing that there is this possibility, we're told, that he has weapons of mass destruction. And then we can justify all kinds of actions with a very specific, narrow, you know, holding of some facts or some ideas So the real problem, you know, in this work is this work generally and specifically working with the precepts, is a kind of forgetfulness. That we forget that the moment, the inform, literally, literally the information, the data that's right here, it's all we have. Our wisdom, any skill we're going to have, it's completely dependent on being connected. And when I say the moment, I'm also including like what's arising internally as much as what's arising externally around us in terms of what we're seeing and hearing. So we want to uh, understand that to be skillful in life, to live in a way that doesn't cause harm for ourselves and others, it totally depends on developing the capacity to be connected broadly deeply to how it is this inclusive this inclusive awareness which in another way of saying that is that we understand that everything is relevant nothing's irrelevant nothing that's arising in the moment is irrelevant it's all relevant So let me just read uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's comments on those three precepts second, third, and fifth precept. So, just to remind us for those who are relatively new to the precepts the first one is this training in non harming or non killing, the second is the training in non stealing. And Thich Nhat Hanh's comment to that one is aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression, I vow to cultivate loving kindness and learn ways to work for the well being of people animals, plants. I vow to practice generosity by sharing my time, energy, and material resources with those who are in real need. I I am determined not to steal and not to possess anything that should belong to others. I I will respect the property of others, but I will do everything in my power to prevent others from profiting from human suffering or from the suffering of other species. And then the third precept, which is this training in refraining from sexual misconduct, Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's comments are, aware of the suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I am committed to cultivating responsibility and learning ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families, and society. I am determined not to engage in sexual relations without love and a long-term commitment. To preserve the happiness of myself and others, I am determined to respect my commitments and the commitment of others. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse and to protect couples and families from being harmed by sexual misconduct. And then for the fifth training, well then the fourth one is this training in refraining from false or ha- harmful speech. And then the fifth training is uh, this training in uh, refraining from intoxicating the mind. And TikTok Han says, he really makes a big, uh, he opens this particular precept, which generally focuses on not intoxicating the mind to just a reflection on consumption. So he says, Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption, I am committed to the cultivation of good health, both physical and mental, for myself, my family, and my society, by practicing mindful eating, drinking, and consuming. I will ingest only items that preserve peace, well-being, and joy in my body, in my consciousness, and in the collective body and consciousness of my family and society. I am determined not to use alcohol and other intoxicants or to ingest foods or other items that contain toxins, such as certain TV programs, magazines, books, films, and conversations. I am aware that to damage my body or my consciousness with these poisons, Is to betray my ancestors, my parents, my society, and future generations. I will work to transform violence, fear, anger, and confusion in myself and in society by practicing a diet for myself and for society. I understand that a proper diet is crucial for self transformation and for the transformation of society. Thich Nhat Hanh has a, a wonderful book, partly of his writings, and then a number of other uh, Buddhist teachers and other teachers reflecting on these five precepts called For a Future to be Possible. I'm assuming it's still in print. I think we have a copy or maybe a couple copies in the library. So you can check that out when you get a chance. So I thought as a more focused reflection, um, I'll say a little bit more and, and hopefully save a little time for discussion looking at the second, the third, the fifth precept and thinking about him generally around this issue of consumption. You know, as human beings, we can avoid consuming. As I said last night, it's, this world is characterized by life eating life. Life consumes. We're consuming all the time. And, and then so the understanding, the precept of not stealing, not harming through sexual activity, not harming through intoxicating the mind. It really depends on understanding what consumption is all about, where it comes from, what's the consequences of consumption. And in, even in a deeper sense, it all has to do with how we understand the world. What is our relationship to the world of sense experiences? Because that's what we consume. Or at least that's what we attempt to consume. We're attempting to consume sense experience. Even we can attempt to consume a Dharma talk. Someone's giving a Dharma talk and we can, in a sense, try to feed on it, to get it. We want it, we want to own it. We want to own the information or own the inspiration or own whatever. You know, Like the ego, in a sense, is attempting to feed on an experience. It can be true with reading, hearing. It can be true with seeing. You know, when we see something we like, you we notice how we, we're trying to get something from it. It's not enough just to see it, but we really see it. I don't know if it's true for everybody, but I notice that when I see someone sexually attractive, I notice that impulse. You know, I, I try uh, not always to indulge in it, but that impulse, it's like not just looking but the eyes, the whole experience of seeing, it's like as if the mind can consume something in the activity of looking. Of course, it's completely frustrating because there is no satisfaction in that kind of consuming. But this kind of consuming characterizes most of our consumption, not just, you know, lusting or something like that. The Buddha teaches, this is pretty provocative, you know. He says there's two kinds of happiness. There's the happiness of sense pleasure, like seeing something we like, hearing something we like, tasting something we like, thinking something we like. There's the happiness of sense pleasure, which is impermanent, unsatisfying, and not self. That's what the Buddha would say. But it's still, in a sense, a kind of happiness. Right? And to deny that would be, be would be not being honest. You know, when you go home and take a hot bath tonight or crawl into a comfortable bed or have a cup of hot chocolate or whatever you might do, get a hug from a partner. There's there's a that that experience, that pleasantness is real. It is what it is. It's not more than what it is, but it's also not less than what it is. So the Buddha says there is something called sense pleasure, and it's a real happiness, but it's a limited happiness. And then he says, and then there's the happiness of renunciation. And it's the happiness of renunciation that's a greater happiness. One of my favorite suttas or discourses by the Buddha, I'll share part of it with us tonight, Once the Blessed One was staying at uh, Sakita, Sakita in the Anjana Forest Game Refuge. Then Kundalia, the wanderer, came to where the Blessed One was staying and on arrival greeted him courteously and after engaging in pleasant conversation, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, "Venerable Gotama, I like to frequent gatherings in parks. It is my habit at midday after the morning meal to go from park to park, from garden to garden, where I encounter various priests and contemplatives discoursing on the rewards of and of defending their own tenets and debate and the rewards of condemning those of others. Now, in the experience of what reward does Venerable Gautama dwell? So he's kind of skimming the surface of spiritual life, but at least he happened upon somebody who... who had something important to say. So the Buddha responds, he refers to himself as the Tathagata, the one thus gone. And the Buddha says, the Tathagata dwells experiencing the reward of, of the fruits of clear knowing and release. I really like that answer. So he says, he's basically saying, yeah, there are rewards to the way I practice. It's the reward of clear knowing and release. Or the release that arises when the mind sees things as they are. And Kundalini asks, you know, well, how did that come to be? And the Buddha says, the seven factors of awakening. And then Kundalini says, and what are the qualities that lead to the culmination of the seven factors of awakening? So the seven factors of awakening is just describing it's a list the Buddha used, a model the Buddha used to describe this beautiful balance of wholesome qualities. Energizing wholesome qualities, calming, tranquilizing wholesome qualities. And when they're in balance, the mind can't help but see things as they are, can't help but have insight. So then of course Kundaliya asks, Well, how does how did these seven factors come to be? And the Buddha says, Through training in the four foundations. In other words, being mindful of the body and mind. Being intimate with the body and mind, as they actually are. And then Kundalia asks, Well, how do we become, you know, how do we develop these four foundations? Or the four foundations just body and then three aspects of the mind feeling, mind states, and the skillfulness of mind. So it's just a short way of saying that it's the mind and body. So the, he asks, Well, how does this intimacy, this connection, this honest connection with The mind and body come to be. And the Buddha responds um, the three courses of right conduct right thought, right speech, right action. So we can't be intimate with the mind and body when we're not relating skillfully in the moment. Because being out of harmony with our situation, it causes dissonance, you know, it causes, it agitates the mind, there's feedback, you know, when when I'm not in harmony with the rest of you, there's, there's feedback, whether it's in, coming from the ex, uh, outside or coming from the inside, like if I'm really needy sitting up here and, and trying to get some response to you that makes me feel good, you know, that. That disharmony keeps me from being mindful, from being really connected. I get confused. I start to misread my experience. The balance of mind won't develop. And then Kundalini asks, well, how how do these three courses of right conduct come to be? And the Buddha says, restraint of the senses. And how does restraint of the senses when developed and pursued lead to the culmination of the three courses of right conduct? So the Buddha asks himself that question because he's, I'm assuming, anticipating Kundaliya's question. So how, why would restraining the senses develop, uh, lead to the culmination of right conduct, living in harmony? The bliss of blamelessness is another way the Buddha would talk about that. There is the case where a person, a practitioner On seeing a pleasant form with the eye, does not hanker after it, does not delight in it, does not give rise to passion for it. Unmoved in body, unmoved in mind, she is inwardly well composed and well released. On seeing an unpleasant form with the eye, she is not upset, her mind is not unsettled, her feelings are not wounded, her mind does not become resentful. Unmoved in body, unmoved in mind, she is inwardly well composed, well released." Same with sound, same with smelling, same with tasting, same with um, tactile sensation, and same with mind states or mind objects, thinking thoughts. Uh, Cognizing a pleasant idea with the intellect. He does not hanker after it, does not delight in it, does not give rise to passion for it. Unmoved in body, unmoved in mind, he is inwardly well composed and well released on cognizing an unpleasant idea with the mind. He is not upset. His mind is not unsettled. His feelings are not wounded. His mind has not become resentful. Unmoved in body, unmoved in mind. He is inwardly well composed, well released. This is how kundalaya, restraint of the senses when developed and pursued, leads to the culmination of the three courses of right conduct. So if we want to live harmoniously, what needs to, it's not about effort in the sense like I'm going to force myself to be skillful, force myself not to kill, not to steal, not to engage in sexual activities that are harmful or to speak in ways that are hurtful or untrue or intoxicate the mind. So we're using the force of will to keep us from being bad. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that skillfulness, living in harmony, Uh, appropriate ethical conduct arises from uh, transforming our relationship to sense experience. What do we take sense experience to be? Or what is our relationship to the world? An ordinary person, what the Buddha would call a worldly person, which means us, our relationship to the world is we think the world of experience is here to give us happiness. Right? That's why we have experience. So we have this mentality, this point of view that that's what the world is for. I'm here in this life having these experiences in order to exert myself to get what will lead to happiness. We're pretty sure that happiness comes from getting what we want and avoiding what we don't want. And that's the hankering after this and that that the Buddha is talking about. And it's totally, given you know, how we've been conditioned, the cultural conditioning, genetic conditioning, it's, it makes sense that we're trapped, to some degree, in this view. The question is, are we willing to challenge that view and see whether it's actually helpful or not? At first, initially, renunciation just does not make sense. The Buddha is asking that we renounce the world of attachment to sense-experience. We're not renouncing the world of experience. We're renouncing the world of attachment to sense experience. Sense experience will still arise as it does. There still will be sounds and sights, thoughts, tactile sensations, smells and tastes. But we're training the mind to seek happiness not through those sense contact, those sense experiences, but seeking happiness through letting go of the mind's dependence on sense experience, a happiness that's unconditioned or not about sense experience. Because as long as our idea of happiness is tied to sense experience, we're always going to be in this fragile, (coughs) unstable place because there is no way to really get a handle or to control sense experience. Even when we happen to put together a set, a series of really pleasant sense experiences, it's bound to change. It Nothing lasts for long. This has been especially poignant recently as we've, after comic moved out of our house two years ago, when and I have slowly figured out how to use our space and have begun to make a, a really comfortable place for ourselves. You know, just the the space, you know, just to have some space and just the two of us, so it's relatively uncluttered and it's relatively quiet and things are getting slowly organized in a way that's appealing or satisfying for me. But it's been very poignant, on the one hand, how pleasant it is now to go home and spend time in the house. And at the same time, you know, part of my mind understands that uh, like the danger in thinking that I can count on this or that this uh, is meaning, this is going to uh, take care of me in any lasting or meaningful way. The fact that the house is really pleasant. And, you know, after the break in at Common Ground, you are know, just understanding, well, anything can happen any time. You know, we don't know what's around the corner for the house, for us. You know, it could be a tragedy in our family and, and, you know, somebody might need to move in. And all of a sudden, you know, it's not just the two of us. Or, you know, there could be a burglary or there could be a fire or any number of things. You know, a particular neighbor could move in, different kind of neighbor, you know, that makes a lot of noise or does a lot of this or that. So, the question is Are we willing to consider this transformation, transforming our relationship to the world, or transforming our relationship to the objects of experience, instead of seeing them as something that will lead to happiness, something that we're dependent on? And this, this isn't just true in terms of ice cream in the freezer, this is also true in terms of a warm smile from somebody we love. What is the appropriate relationship, what is the skillful relationship to those relatively wholesome sense experiences like good friendship, the love of a daughter or son or partner, good friend, or even, you know, sitting in the sunshine, the warmth of the sunshine. You know, it's really simple, wholesome, what we consider a wholesome experience. What is the appropriate way for the mind to understand, to relate to those pleasant experiences? Because this has a lot to do with stealing and uh, sexual misconduct and intoxicating the mind. Because a lot of these grossly unskillful behaviors of consumption start off with a misunderstanding of sense experience like you know if we start appreciating you know the ability to feel sun on us you know we might want to cut down our neighbor's tree that's blocking the sun in our yard or or more be more deceptive and slowly poisoning the tree i mean people do things like this you know countries invade other countries because they have what they want they feel they it's, it's our natu- national security. You know, we're not going to go down quietly. If we need something to survive, or if we need something, if we think we need something to survive, that gives us the right to do what we have to do. We feel justified not only doing anything we have to do to survive, but even from in a from a psychological point of view, we feel justified in doing anything we need to do to protect our uh, our psychological sense of self, not just to protect our body. So, if somebody uh, in our circle of friends or acquaintances, if somebody, if we imagine that somebody in that circle has thoughts about us that threaten our sense of psychological stability, you know, well being, then we throw them out of our heart. We throw them out of our circle because we can't have somebody threatening our sense of who I am. I'm a good person. Do you notice how that happens? Like if we if we think somebody I see this all the time. I mean these sometimes these are my really good friends. <laughs> you know, and but if you think that they're judging you, judging me. If I think that they're judging me, or that they're seeing something in me that I don't want to see, I don't want to be reminded of, then we have to destroy them in some way in our mind. We have to put them down. We have to, psychologically at least, get rid of them. We have to eliminate the threat. So there are all kinds of ramifications for the mind's dependence on sense experiences. And this is the thing, because in our essence we are a scared animal trying to survive, and scared animals are willing to do anything to survive, that's just the way that it is. So then as a human being, in our relationship to objects, we're willing to do anything to get what we need, to hold on to what we need or think we need, to get rid of what we consider a real threat. And that's why there's so much suffering, because this, is, this involves everybody now. Because we're social beings, we're interacting in all kinds of ways, com- competing for resources. There's just a lot of divisiveness and, and fear and suffering because of our relationship to objects of experience. So the question is, what's, what's the other way? I'll just share a few words from Ajahn Sumedho and then one of the senior nuns in the um, Ajahn Chah Western lineage, Ajahn Sundara. But first, Ajahn Sumedho in his little booklet, Now is the Knowing, which you can download. It's PDF on the internet. Thus, the goal for, th- for the Buddhist is not worldly happiness, because we realize that happiness is unsatisfying. He's talking about the happiness of sensual pleasures. We realize that sensual happiness is unsatisfying. The goal lies away from the sensual world. It is not a rejection of the sensual world, but understanding it so well that we no longer seek it as an end in itself. We no longer expect the sensory world to satisfy us. We no longer demand that sensory consciousness be anything other than an existing condition that we can skillfully use according to time and place. We no longer attach to it or demand that sense impingement always be pleasant or feel despair or sorrow when it's unpleasant. Nibbana isn't a state of blankness, a trance where you're totally wiped out. It's not a nothingness or annihilation. It's like a space. It's going into the space of your mind where you no longer attach, where you're no longer deluded by the appearance of things. You are no longer demanding anything from the sensory world. You are just recognizing it as it arises and passes away. And he tells a pretty provocative story later in this section. About a woman coming with her child who had a, evidently some kind of terrible respiratory infection. You know, and to see a little baby struggling and to cough up the mucus. And, and the mother, of course, was totally distraught by the, her suffering child and asked Ajahn Samir, you know, why? How can this kind of thing happen? What did this, what could have this baby have done to deserve this sort of struggling, this pain? Ajahn <laughs> I don't know if he said it to the woman, but he says it here, you know, uh, the child's suffering because he was born. You know, this experience of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, you know, this cycles of pleasant and unpleasant experience, it just comes with the territory of being born. It's never like life is betraying us. Or that somehow we deserve all the good stuff that are happening. I mean, people misunderstand karma in that way, where they think when something bad happens that we deserve it, or when something good happens that we deserve that. But of course, it doesn't make sense in the teachings of the Buddha, because the whole point is there isn't a center. There's karma, meaning there's cause and effect, but there's no center to it, there's no somebody there receiving the karma, the good or bad fruits. So it's a misunderstanding that somebody deserves it. It just means that when there when there is birth, you know, when the body and mind is here operating as a body and mind, then sometimes lawfully pleasant things unfold and lawfully unpleasant things unfold due to these innumerable causes and conditions. And the question of skill is always What's the best way to relate to the world of experience? How can we relate in a way that doesn't cause suffering? And then a similar teaching from Ajahn Sundara, one of the senior nuns, originally from France. This is a chapter in a book. It's a collection of uh, writings by the, the nuns in um, the Western... Achancha lineage, the Thai Forest lineage, and her uh, article is called "Freedom in Restraint." She says, "When the Buddha taught the first noble truth, he said that taking refuge in human existence is an unsatisfactory experience. If one attaches to this mortal frame, one will suffer. Right? If we get attached to the world of experience, suffering is inevitable." And she goes on, she says, not getting what you want is painful. That's quite easy to relate to. Getting what you don't want can also be painful. But as we walk a little further in the footsteps of the Buddha, even getting what we want is painful. This is the beginning of the path of awakening. When we realize that getting what we want in the material world is unsatisfactory too, that's when we start to mature. We're not children anymore, hoping to find happiness by getting what we want or running away from pain. We live in a society that worships the gratification of desires, but many of us are not really interested in just gratifying desires because we know intuitively that this is not what human existence is about. And maybe that's, maybe it's fair to say that, that that's true for us, that we're at that place now where we're beginning to wonder at least, question, well, maybe life isn't about just gratifying sense desire. Maybe that's a limited approach to life. And so we, ha- we start to take up a more reflective view, like, well, what's really going on here? What is the consequence of living a life just to consume sense experience? Where does it lead? What have I learned watching my own life and observing other people's lives? Like, who has found real happiness? You know, the people that are been fortunate and very competent at getting pleasant sense experiences, have they actually gotten anywhere meaningful by the end of their lives? So why do we put all our effort in this pursuit of sense experience? in a way, it's impossible to be skillful, you know, just in a basic ethical sense, without some understanding of the limitations of sense experience. Because if we think it's all about sense experience, why wouldn't we compete maliciously to get what we want, you know, but in line, for example. You know, we see people operating that way in the business world, and the world of traffic, and in relationships, you know, just getting what they want, taking what they want. They go to the bowl of fruit, you know, <clears throat> they look through all the fruit and they just take all the good fruit and leave the bruised fruit behind without thinking that, well, somebody's got to eat the bruised fruit. Now, how do we know we're not the one who's supposed to eat the bruised fruit? Now, how do we know, like, how much is enough? You know, when we eat this much, every time we eat something, that means somebody else isn't going to eat that. Like, how do we figure this all out? How much money should we have in our bank account? (laughs) Oh, you know the answer?
1: (laughs) Okay, Okay. be
0: quiet. When's going to tell us how much we should have in our bank account? (laughs) Yeah, this is a good place to open it up for discussion. We've got about 10 minutes left.
2: The word "sense experience," I think, are throwing me off a little bit because, you know, when I think of the Brahma Viharas, you know, when you're in a state of compassion or loving kindness, or, you know, that's a sense experience. Just like the, even the words "release," you know, the the release of the mind is a sense experience. The jhanas are a sense experience, and and so are, are we. Sort of. I, I don't. I don't really clearly understand how you're distinguishing kind of worldly, and non-worldly, and release,
0: and just just this word sensual is is a little problematic for me. Yeah. Well, I think it does, like you suggest, involve everything you've said. All of that is sense experience. Now remember, it's not about rejecting sense experience, and it's also not saying that some sense experiences don't have more stability than other sense experiences. pursuing calm or pursuing states of universal kindness have more resonance, more stability than pursuing the happiness of eating a bowl of ice cream which is so ephemeral. I mean, relatively speaking, is very ephemeral but if we tap into a state of loving kindness you know, that, that experience has some resonance for a while. It protects us for a while but if if that state is arising due to certain causes and conditions, then it's a worldly experience still, right? Because that means it's fragile. It's still a condition of the mind as opposed to the mind itself. And so that's really the distinction. Are we taking taking refuge in a, a condition of the mind? A sound is a condition of the mind. A mind state is a condition of the mind. A taste is a condition of the mind. Or are we taking refuge, you could say, in the mind itself or in the unconditioned? As long as we're taking refuge or as long as there's a dependency on something that's conditioned, meaning it's not permanent, it's impermanent, then there's anxiety. So even beautiful states of mind, if they're impermanent, then even though we may not be aware of it consciously, On some level, there's tightness in the mind because we realize that this beautiful feeling of loving-kindness is dependent on seeing the world a particular way, and my mind is capable of seeing it in another way, in which case hatred might arise. You know, like we'll be sitting in a beautiful meditation hall having developed a beautiful state of loving-kindness, and then somebody could pass gas or burp or just make a lot of noise, and we could become very angry, you know, that of you know they're in uh, they're being inconsiderate. So, as beautiful as that is, it's fragile. It isn't something we can really take refuge in. Same with jhana or deep states of absorption.
2: But it strikes me though that um, using our house, for instance, mm-hmm. like I find some, I find some nourishment from the calm and tranquility of our space. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and it feels like it's okay to take that, to be open to that nourishment, not to be afraid of that. And to be open to it and receive it doesn't necessarily mean being attached to it, I, I don't think.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the attachment that's toxic. Not, in fact, not opening to it would be toxic, right? Because we're afraid of connecting with beauty. So the practice isn't to be afraid of beauty and it isn't to be afraid of the unpleasant. It's to be intimate with everything. But we can't be intimate with everything and be dependent on it. So if the mind is dependent on the calm, you can't actually appreciate how beautiful it is. It's the same in relationship too. If we're really dependent on somebody loving us, we can't really show up and be there and meet them and connect with them. Because that the, the dependency is distorting the experience. It's a corruption in the experience, in a way. So I think what I, uh, how I interpret what you're saying, when is is that it's easy to misread these teachings as a rejection of the world. And I forget, but somewhere right at the beginning I said, you know, it's not, I think it was Ajahn Sumedho was saying, it's not a rejection of the world. That's a misunderstanding, that somehow thinking... That the world is bad. The world is just what it is. They're beautiful conditions and they're ugly conditions. That's just that's what makes up our world. And the thing is, as long as we can see something as being beautiful, we're in the world of ugly. You can't you can't appreciate something as being beautiful without there being ugliness. Because we're in that duality of good and bad. So that's kind of what that's the point. I was pointing to, like when I see how nice my house is, I realize, and, and it's affecting my experience. I realize how how rare this is. For example, I mean that that really comes up for me that the the beauty and the protectedness of my home that it's a, a very rare fragile thing, and that affects my experience with it. It undermines any kind of attachment. Or dependency on it when I remember that and that it could change in an an instant. And that feels, it's hard to bear, it's hard to let go of that dependency because, you know, the the conventional mind wants that kind of ground. It wants something it thinks okay, my relationship with Wynn is secure, my home is secure, I've got money in the bank, I've got a job, but that's a false security to be dependent on those kinds of things. So
2: what happens in in your mind at that
0: moment? The mind gets interested in another refuge. And that's exactly the turning point the Buddha is talking about, where we go from a a world or an orientation of seeking ground, seeking refuge in sense experience, really beautiful relationships, beautiful home, you know, beautiful... Relationship with the community in terms of livelihood, to uh, opening to a happiness that's, that that uh, isn't about that. Yeah,
2: but what what is that in that moment? Do you know what? It's letting go.
0: It we're take the we're taking refuge in letting go, in non-attachment, in non-clinging. And yeah, of so, so
3: piece of the letting go. <clears throat> Reminding the mind, or you know, the, as you're in your beautiful space, experiencing the beauty and the calm, like remembering that it's impermanent, remembering how rare it is, remembering how. Um, is, it, is it. Does it somehow take away from your enjoyment in the moment?
0: Yeah. It and takes you. So, go ahead.
3: And so, is that a part of like a gift that you're not receiving? Do you know what I mean? Like. Because I'm really I mean I'm, I'm, I'm so committed to this practice and to this understanding and I'm also really committed to being happy And, I, and I'm finding that that I spend so much time thinking about maybe because I maybe because <coughs> in my mind it's been as skillful or clear if you know what I mean but um, I don't want to step away from what we're talking about.
0: Well I, no, I think what you're saying is relevant. So the question is, why not pursue, as skillfully as we can, why not pursue worldly pleasure, creating really wholesome lives for ourselves, exerting our skill, our will, as much as we can, skillfully, to cultivate good friendships, cultivate good livelihood. This, These are the teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha tells us to do this. Develop a generous life, develop a life of harmony, the Buddha was not saying cultivate poverty. You know, he was not saying, you know, don't have friendships. He was saying just the opposite. But when we develop as best we can given our circumstances, a lot of that stability that comes with good relationships, good mind states, you know, like learning how to calm the mind down, being skilled at that, learning how to have a good craft or a good skill so we can earn money and Take care of ourselves and take care of our family, but as we're doing that, the Buddha then and we're and we're reaping the benefits of that good work. The Buddha would then start to teach about the limitations of that, and not only that, he would you know in, in Buddhist cosmology, he would say, forget just this life, cultivate the conditions for you know otherworldly kind of pleasures in Deva realms where you just everything you could ever imagine you have. And even in those, in that kind of existence, then begin to reflect on the limitations of the best possible pleasant conditions. That there, it's always involved stress. When we're in the world of good and bad, there's no way not to be anxious, to be suffering. And then the mind opens to another possibility, it opens to the possibility of letting go letting go of its attachment to sense experience. Mm -hmm. But letting go of attachment to sense experience is not aversion to sense experience, and that's the important thing to remember. Because that's what we think. That's what he rejected right at the very beginning of his teaching, right? The first talk he gave was saying it's not about rejecting life. That was the insight. It was that insight that allowed him to have his big insight under the Bodhi tree, that his uh, pursuing the ascetic life wasn't an end in itself. It was just frustrating. It was just more aversion.
4: So so would be cultivating a happy life be in delusion? uh, No, it's a skillful means. No, no, no. I mean, um, in in the larger thing, if if there's happiness, Mm -hmm. then there's also... Badness. So be after
0: more, um... but the question is, how, how does the insight into letting go arise? And the insight into letting go arises when we have enough sense pleasure, enough goodness in our life that the heart relaxes, that sort of hungry survival instinct beast relaxes a little bit. And we, can, we have enough space and we look around and we see how this endless pursuit of security is frustrating and stressful. And the mind opens, and then we hear the teaching, basically. I think most of us need that input where somebody is saying, uh, consider letting go. Letting go of the whole thing. Letting go of the fixation on things being this way or that way. Let go of the whole idea of good and bad.
4: But there are other ways to let go besides just having
1: enough happiness
0: that you can see that it doesn't really bring the kind of happiness you're looking for. Is that correct or not? Yeah, there are probably other ways. Yeah, But, you know, generally speaking, people uh, it, overwhelmed by poverty aren't so interested in renunciation. Right. You know? They're interested in having enough. Well, I,
4: I, I guess the thing is personally, um, when you're visited by a health something or other, and then all of a sudden all that other stuff becomes less important. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, it's like those. there's no happiness of the kind in that if, if, if you have
0: health tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. That's a big, uh, can be a very skillful <laughs> teacher for us when we confront death, either because we're near somebody who's having a serious illness or dying mm-hmm. or we have our own serious illness because it it breaks the seduction that when we get the ducks in a row, the beautiful home, that somehow we're the, we've, we've gotten someplace. Yeah. That's the other thing that's so poignant to me now. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, because my life, you know, it's sort of like, my life is pretty good right now. And... Uh, but it's like I just see that uh, that it isn't anything to grasp. That it doesn't mean much in any real sense. I still prefer it. And I think it's appropriate to, to do what we can to maintain that sort of relative, wholesome, pleasant existence because it allows the mind to be more reflective. We have to deeply respect the survival instinct and as I mentioned a couple times, that exists for us because of our language and the complicated mind. It exists for us psychologically as well as physically. We want the sense of me, who I think I am, (laughs) wants to survive any threats that I imagine, you know, people who have other ideas of who I am. Okay, so
4: that's Uh, uh, Thomas Martin was saying frenzied life uh, uh, leads to um means essentially. Um, and then uh, and then I was just um, I was struck by the juxtaposition ju- ju- of the Thich Nhat Hanh talking of the, the precepts and taking on this much larger and um, so how is it uh because I think when, when you have a good life, and when you when you're given gifts of intellect, and you're given gifts, of, you want to take on projects, and you want to give into the world, and it's so hard to not get caught.
1: Yeah.
0: In I think the 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 usefulness of Thich Nhat Han's comments is to open up all the different avenues where we can reflect on that precept. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily not necessary to necessarily about being responsible for fixing everything, but just to see how our life is embedded in all these ways, how we consume has all kinds of consequences. We think, you know, we can get away with watching something that it's not hurting other people, but we don't realize we, we're forgetting how um, we're in the same soup, and it, what affects us affects other people. We can't do something that's harmful to ourselves without harming everyone. I think about that sometimes when I click on articles, you know, because it has consequences, you know. They're going to write more stupid articles if I click on one. (laughs) Do we want to be encouraging, you know, people to write stupid articles by clicking on them? I think about that. I, if I ever could figure out a way to read the article without encouraging them,
1: somebody,
0: some other people understand this dilemma. No
1: one in here
0: does. It. Uh, so we'll, we'll pick this up again tomorrow night. But it's time for walking practice. Just let's take a couple. A moment to let go of the words, take a few breaths together. have um, 15 minutes of walking practice. So we'll start our sit a little bit later tonight. Same though, we'll do our chanting as we did last night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers
1: and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.